Welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about aesthetics and politics. Uh, I don't like to use this phrase very often, but this episode sort of broke my brain a little bit. I am joined by the architect, author, and educator Mark Foster Gage. Mark is currently an assistant dean at the Yale School of Architecture and edited a brand new book that just came out called Aesthetics Equals Politics. And as I was reading the essays in the book, I was struck by how my understanding of and definitions for aesthetics suddenly felt dated or inaccurate or somehow limiting. And so I wanted to have Mark on the show to talk about aesthetics. And that's what this episode is all about. We talk about the evolutions of aesthetic theory and how it's more than just how something looks in that sort of uh, Kantian sense. Aesthetics, as Mark describes in the book, is a basis for human activity. And we use this definition to try to reframe how we talk about aesthetics and how this changes the way designers can think about how they work. We also talk about Mark's own background studying classical architecture and his early interest in philosophy and the problems that come with this kind of post-rationalization of the narratives around our work. This is a, a very deep philosophical conversation and I'm honestly still uh, wrapping my head around a lot of it, but I think it's just a great episode. And if you're interested like me in this intersection between theory and practice or philosophy and design, aesthetics equals politics is a great book to spend time with. And I hope that this conversation that you're about to hear is a great introduction to the argument that Mark puts forward in the book. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism and, and all the things that we talk about on the show, and as well as previews of upcoming episodes and, and future guests. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships. So if you would like to help with the ongoing production of the podcast, I hope that you consider joining. Thank you, as always, for listening. And here is me talking with Mark Foster Gage. I'd, I'd like to talk about the new book, but before we do that, I kind of... I want to talk a little bit about your background and, and your career because you, as I've been spending time with your work over the last uh, you know couple of weeks or so preparing for this and, and thinking about this, um, you have a career that I think uh, relates to a lot of the themes of the podcast. And so I kind of want to talk about how you kind of got into all of this. And so you originally studied uh, both architecture and art history at Notre Dame. Yes. So can you talk about I, I know it's like weird kind of in retrospect to talk about what you were thinking at the time, but what were your interests then when you were in school? What kind of career were you imagining for yourself? Uh, it's, yeah, <laughs> that, that is a tough one. Um, so I, yes, I was in uh, architecture and got a second major in art history at Notre Dame. And it started out in architecture. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but Notre Dame is a was then and still is a completely uh, classical architecture school, totally oh, interesting. dedicated to, you know, I, I spent in my undergraduate, my first three studios were a semester on the Doric, a semester on the Ionic and a semester on the Corinthian. Oh, wow. Okay. And when I graduated, uh, I came out during spring break to New York cause I wanted to be in New York and interviewed at a bunch of classical firms and also interviewed with Robert A. M. Stern architects. Mm. And, uh, I went back and told one of my professors that if I had been offered a job at Robert Amstern Architects, and I had accepted because I was, you know, I was proud, he was well-known. And, yeah. and my professor said, Robert Amstern, why would you want to work for that modernist? <laughs> said, why would you want to work for that modernist? <laughs> because yeah. Notre Dame is like so conservative that Bob Stern oh, that's seen amazing. as like being this radical heresy. Um, and the reason I wanted to get an art history um, education as well was because very early on, I realized that the education I was getting at Notre Dame was uh, really strong, foundationally, really unusual. Um, uh, you know, really, we didn't in our history classes cover anything after, you know, you know, eighteen like mm. eighteen ninety nine. You know, <laughs> yeah. So I um, I knew that I was missing something. So I decided to kind of go to the 
next, I don't know, maybe the closest thing to architecture, which was art and art history, and that you couldn't take two studio degrees at the same time because you don't have time to do art studio. Right, right. Architecture studio, but I found out that I could get an art history degree, basically double major, um, by packing my electives full and taking extras. And I focused my art history education on 20th century stuff because I wasn't getting it in. Right. Right. Um, so my like my undergraduate thesis was called Seriality and Gravity in the Work of Jackson Pollock. And it was about when he mm. returned to figuration after his abstract expressionism. Right. And that was like, you know, 1956 is about as far as my education went. But when I graduated, it was funny. Like, I didn't know. I'd never heard of, like, Frank Gehry. I didn't know who any of these people That's were. so interesting. Yeah. So, so was the... I have two questions that may or may not be related. Was the did you see the that art history degree as something that was in service of the architecture degree? Were you still very much interested in being an architect? I guess. And then the the, the kind of related question is, being in a in a classical program was that something that was that your interest in architecture? I guess. Right. Or, or um, were you? Why were you craving that that modernism? I um I you know I went to Notre Dame like a lot of people because it was you know the best school I got into got good financial aid but I honestly didn't know you know I had only become interested in architecture in uh, my humanities class in in um, in high school and we spent a third of the semester on music a third on art and a third on architecture and I was like wow architecture is really interesting and so i just put it down as my possible major when i applied to schools and then i got into notre dame and just started taking architecture classes and i had no idea it was a classical architecture program but i got into it and i was like wow this is really like interesting um and you know i gotta say you know i've been teaching at yale for 18 years and yale's model is predicated on people from all sorts of different places argue, arguing and you know kind of pluralism like abject pluralism uh and Notre Dame was the opposite it was like everybody focused on one goal like reintroducing mm. the architecture of antiquity like back into the world and that was I don't know it kind of felt a little bit like you're part of the rebel alliance or something yeah you know, like yeah. You're, you're part of something and that appealed to me but what also appealed to me is that it was so unbelievably rigorous like Classical architecture is something that you can be innovative with, but not unless you know the rules. Uh, and there's very right. strict rules, so it's like chess. Like classical architecture right. is like chess. You can make these moves, but you really have to calculate how they're going to impact, you know, because it's all based on algorithms and proportions. If you change a metope distance, that changes the whole facade in some ways. There's things that have to line up. There's things that don't, don't have to line up. There's proportional rules and... The more you learn about it, the better you get. The better you get, the more heretically you can get while still playing inside the rules. And that always, I don't know, that was always my comfort zone, was like pushing the rules as much as I could. I remember I got in trouble during my senior thesis, my fifth year thesis, because I had uh, windows stacked on top of each other and I had a window lintel that was the sill of the one above it. So mm. this piece mm. of stone was doubling as a window sill and a lintel and it was like, oh my God, you can't do that. Like, yeah, everyone, everything in classical architecture is one function, you know, and you're doubling up on right. functions. And I was talking about, like, I was reading theory on my own. I was reading linguistic theory and Ferdinand de Saussure. And I'm talking about these theoretical ideas and how this lintel has two meanings. And I'm sure it was the most ridiculous thing. But in retrospect, I was just like trying to find an intellectual basis for my work. And that was something that wasn't really. I would say strong aspect of the program in architecture, but it was entirely the program of art history. So I got the intellectual, let's say, fortitude from art history because especially the stuff I was studying, mid 20th century work, it's not about manual dexterity and skill at all. It's about right. ideas and kind of cultural movements that propelled the art. So when Jackson Pollock is doing, you know, painting, it's not about classical proportions it's, it's the opposite of that so i was kind of like trying to get the alpha and the, and the omega you started answering exactly what my next question was going to be because i feel like so much of your work 
is also, it's not just in practicing architecture, but it's also in theory and writing. And I was curious when that came in. And so you mentioned that you got a lot of that from art history, but you're also reading a lot of theory on your own. Where'd that interest come from? Or how did that start to filter into these, you know, kind of other studies yeah, that I would we were say doing? Two, two, two moments. One, one moment is I was a sophomore and Notre Dame has a really great, you know, architectural library, but it's super duper mm. like classically oriented. So right. you would go in and you know how librarians in architects, in architecture libraries all around the world, they put like the new books up on the new bookshelf, you know, and, right. and you know, you would look on this new book shelf and it would be like insights into the Doric order. You know, like you know, you know in other, yeah. other schools, it's yeah. like you know Frank Gehry's new monograph. You know Zaha Hadid's right. like new little book, or when she, you know before she was. That's so interesting. Uh, Notre Dame yeah. is like you know, uh, you know, like an analysis of the metopes of the Parthenon. You know, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the new book section was kind of like funny at the time, like really. Um, but there was this one book I saw, and it was a book by Ad. And it was called Reconstruction, Deconstruction. My ideology is better than yours. And it was Leon Creer versus Peter Eisenman. And Leon okay. Creer, for who you, if your viewers don't know, is like the founding father of new urbanism and all about traditional cities and really vernacular, solid stone buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a great, great architect. I've actually taught a studio with him since, which is a, a little bit ironic. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. But, um, uh, and then the other half of the book was Peter Eisenman, and we didn't have any Peter Eisenman books in our library, but I feel like this one slipped under their radar because it had Leon Creer on it. So I started mm-hmm. reading these debates between Leon Creer and Peter Eisenman, and I was like, oh my God, this is fascinating. Like, I knew all the Creer stuff by heart, uh, but the Peter Eisenman right. stuff is like radical architectural thinker at the time, talking about the value of heterotopia and difference and the difference and Derrida and deconstruction. And I was like, Oh my God, like I had no idea any of this. So <laughs> our yeah. program at the time was for a church. It was, we were, I think it was like, you know, the Ionic semester or whatever. And, you know, at Notre Dame being a Catholic school, like I would say every other yeah. studio we did was a church or a chapel, but like, right. I got as radical as I could on that church. Okay. And, really like it ended up being like a, a catholic you know cathedral but like the most radical i could do was in the style of gaudi so okay yeah this gaudi church and i was throwing all these theory ideas from peter eisenman at the jury and they were like this kid is nuts <laughs> so that was one moment where i was like wow this is really exciting to use my mind in this way and to like to be a kind yeah. of the school and push people's buttons and then the second moment was in uh we all study for a year in rome uh, as part of our okay. five-year program we spent our third year in rome and we had a visiting architectural theory professor named uh, bronco mitrovic who's still a friend of mine he teaches in norway and he introduced us to kant and mm. ideas of aesthetics okay. and the idea that really like launched my interest in aesthetics which i think is going to be part of the conversation where we yeah, yeah. Know, was this idea in Kant called uh, subsummation or subsumen mm-hmm. in German, in which you subsume something under a concept. And what Kant was basically saying was, if you look at a vase, you make an aesthetic judgment about that vase, whether it's beautiful or ugly, before you recognize it as a vase. And right. once you recognize it as a vase and give it the name vase and understand it as a function of holding water, and uh, you like make it a linguistic word in your mind and you apply the function to it and you know everything about a vase and you have expectations of it, then it's, you're no longer capable of making uh, uh, aesthetic judgments about a thing. Right. That right. resonated very strongly with something I had learned in art history, which was when I was studying the work of Francis Bacon. Um, and he has this idea that his painting was supposed to work directly on the nervous system. And he said this as a quote, and it basically like skips the brain and works directly mm. on the nervous system. And this is the same exact idea of aesthetics that Kant was in his writing. So it was like, wow, this is super interesting. 
there's this way of influencing people with architecture that doesn't have to do with narrative and like symbolism and bullshit, to be honest, you know, saying I was inspired by this bird. Here's my building. It's a bird. Like, but there's this other way that we impact culture and humanity through aesthetics that doesn't have anything to do with the bullshit that we apply to our buildings, but that our buildings work directly on the nervous system. And that idea was what got my interest in aesthetics going. And I had, you know, spent from 1995 until 2008 more as like a hobby when I was working and going to school because nobody at the time was writing about aesthetics. The only book you could get was Dave Hickey's Invisible Dragon, which was like, you know, now it's like $600 on eBay, you know. But there was, there was no nourishment for that. There was no one teaching it at Yale when I went. There was no one teaching at Notre Dame. There was nothing. There was no architectural books on the subject. Uh, so eventually I did a book on the subject and edited uh, a compendium of aesthetic theory essays, mostly just as my own research. Like it was just me learning about the subject because it wasn't in the profession. And I did that mostly in 2008. It was published in 2012, 10, I think. And right around that time, you know, come around 2012, aesthetic starts to become a really interesting subject in philosophy. And by 2015, it's back in architectural discourse. And, you know, I just feel like I kind of forest gumped my way into this, you know, <laughs> contemporary discourse and philosophy and architecture because I was the only person studying it, not because I had any particular virtuosity. <laughs> with the subject matter, but I was like the only guy in architecture who was serious about aesthetics, and now I've kind of become a poster child for the discourse in the, the profession. So, so can you? I, I let's. I mean, I think this is. You're right. This is a good way that we can start kind of talking about the new book. And I have, I have a couple. Just so you know, I do have other some questions about your larger work. But I think while we're talking about aesthetics, you know, we can talk about the book. And something that's, you know, what was interesting to me about reading the new book is. I was starting to question the definitions of aesthetics that I had always thought or that I had always been given. Um, could you define or describe what you mean when you say aesthetics? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like this is going to be like a four hour podcast, I'm sure. But <laughs> that's if that's, you have time, I have no, time. That's, that's really like the entire point of the book is that in yeah. philosophy, Aesthetics is being reevaluated as a branch of philosophy that doesn't only govern what it has in the past. So most people's common conception of aesthetics is really the definition that comes from, you know, the, the movement of aestheticism, of which like mm -hmm. Oscar Wilde and and Walter Pater were kind of the, the primary figures. And aesthetics in that movement were defined as basically like you know all art is quite useless and aesthetics was about art and it was a way right to separate art from the kind of vulgarities of economic marketplace culture you know so oscar wilde's efforts to say all art is quite useless wasn't a blase attitude it was a very strategic way to say you're not getting your hands on art capitalism um, right. There, I see. It was a reaction against that. And so that's good in one way. It's saved art, you know, in, in some circles um, from the kind of vulgarities of just being another product. But at the same time, it turned aesthetics into this useless thing. And you right. only talk about aesthetics if you're going to talk about something is beautiful or ugly. And if you have the time to talk about beautiful things and ugly things, you're clearly an elite uh, you know, person within the world to have all this time to talk about beautiful and ugliness. So aesthetics for most of the 20th century was di dismissed as this useless discourse about beauty and ugliness. And even worse, it was elitist because if you have, to, again, time to talk about beauty, then you're not talking about the real things that matter in the world, which are social ideas and, and cultural ideas and ideas about equality and, you know, right. and what's what's under the structures of the world and hierarchies that are keeping us down. So aesthetics was dismissed for over a hundred years for this reason, because it was seen as the frivolous pursuit as the beautiful and the ugly. And I would say 99 out of a hundred people you ask on the sidewalk, what aesthetics is, they're going to say, Oh, it's whether things are beautiful or ugly. Now yeah. that's significantly outdated 
18th century way of thinking about aesthetics as a branch of philosophy. Aesthetics today within philosophy is defined in a very different way and a very different way by very different people. But I would say one of the best definitions is, I think my, uh, in the book, Timothy Morton, who's a friend of mine and really important in particular as a philosopher within the environmental philosophy um, discourses, uh, really kind of de defines reality as things like in kind of moving around and brushing up against one another, but you can't ever fully experience another thing. Like you can never exhaust its qualities. Like I can taste an apple and see that it's red, but there's a lot of aspects of appleness that I don't have access to. Mm. But, you know, we brush up against apples and we eat them, but we don't fully experience them. And then that's like that brushing up things of against, uh, against each other and the capacity for change, the capacity for people to brush up against each other and experience aspects of each other without ever fully understanding each other. That's like, that's how change happens, you know, by right. objects and things and people brushing up against each other and producing new directions for reality. And that is how, you know, he defines the aesthetic dimension. And that is aesthetics, that ether in which we're all bumping around and coming into contact and slightly experiencing one another and instigating change in other areas, that liquid that we're all swimming in, that is aesthetics. So aesthetics in philosopher Graham Harmon's vocabulary is therefore first philosophy, which is, you know, the philosophy that actually governs our understanding of reality. And that's very different than the frivolous philosophy of, of beauty and ugliness. Instead, it's being reconsidered as the philosophy of like how we sense the world around us. And the only reason yeah. why that's possible now, and it wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago, is because within philosophy, philosophy for the 20th century has been dominated um, by the discourse of idealism as opposed to the discourses of realism. And this is a really mm -hmm. easy divide, but in the discourses of idealism, things are only real as they're perceived to your mind. So for instance, Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. Uh, what right. he's saying is, I don't exist unless I think that I exist. So for instance, the computer I'm in front of isn't real until it's processed by my mind as a computer. Right. So realism is the opposite of that. Realism is saying, a computer it exists outside my mind as an independent thing, whether or not I perceive it. So only within the last 10 years within philosophy has realism started to be taken seriously once again, uh, which means aesthetics as the discourse of the real and sensible information and the way we touch and see and understand the world through our senses is only possible within a world of realism, because if everything is in the world of idealism where you're only processing things in your mind, then things like touch, sight, smell are all just fictions because the true reality is how those things are perceived in the mind. So aesthetics was off the table largely because philosophy was dominated by idealism. The other aspect of that is philosophy was also dominated by uh, what's called correlationism. So things are really understood as part of their relationships with other things. And Deleuze mm. was a big figure in this. We right. would say a water bottle isn't actually an object. It's actually some chemicals that were once sand and gasoline and they were treated and now they're a water bottle. And then they're going to go to a landfill and degrade and become some other form of chemical. So you taking a snapshot of it right now and calling it a water bottle is actually a lie. It's actually always in the process of becoming something else. Oh, I see. So, objects and realism says, nope, this is actually a water bottle. It may become something else later. It may have been something before, but right now it's a water bottle and it has qualities right. that I can sense. I can see it. I can touch it. I know it's weight. I'm, I'm holding one here in front of me. I can understand that it's supposed to hold liquid. Um, I know how long it's going to last me. There's a lot of things I sense and understand with my sensory apparatus as a human about this water bottle. Um, but what's interesting about the water bottle is that there's also a lot of things that my sensory apparatus doesn't understand. For instance, 
Mm-hmm. My dog is sitting here right next to me, Truman, and he may smell aspects of the water <laughs> bottle that I don't smell. And right. Water bottle has, you know, plastic and therefore carbon, and carbon is only formed in the supernova explosions of dying stars. So that means at some point between 4 billion and 13 billion years ago, some carbon landed on this planet and somehow got into this water bottle. I'll never know the journey of that carbon. But what's interesting about the, the one of the discourses featured in the book is object-oriented ontology. Is it's, yeah, it's yeah, largely yeah. about that, that objects uh, have qualities, but humans are never able to exhaust all of those qualities. And that's only possible because philosophy has started to toy around with the idea that objects actually exist in reality, not just in the mind. So it's like a falling domino effect. If philosophy starts to move from idealism to realism, then aesthetics is once again possible to look at as a discourse. And if aesthetics right. is once again possible to look at as a discourse, how would we rethink that today in within the new ways people are thinking about realism? and? One of the key moments of that was in 2008, there was a symposium called Speculative Realism, which was basically a series of a group of philosophers in uh, in England that got together, one of which was uh, Graham Harmon, who's kind of been the probably most, mm-hmm. the, his work has gotten the most traction from those groups. But Speculative Realism, realism, you know, it was a re-articulations right. on what realism can do in philosophy, you know. So... It's no accident that it took like four or five years for even that work to find its way into architecture. Now, this answer is going on too long, but obviously like once architecture gets wind of a philosophy that has to do with aesthetics, you know, architects are like, you know, even if you think aesthetics is only about beautiful and ugliness, like architects are like, wait a minute, like they're talking about aesthetics again, we can do aesthetics. like. Everything we do is aesthetics. We talk about aesthetics all the time. We just don't do it very well and with up-to-date information. So thus, my interest in forming relationships with these philosophers and really getting to know them personally uh, and bringing them into the world of of architecture. So like next semester, I'm teaching a studio with Graham Harmon at Yale, and it will be the first time a a non-architect is a visiting professor in our school's 100-year history, you know, so that's kind of interesting. You know, so we're trying to form new alliances, but then again, it's it's not new because you know Peter Eisenman was doing collaborations with Jacques Derrida in the eighties, and right, Bruce right. Rusky in 1420 was doing collaborations intellectually with Leon Battista Alberti. You know, so there's a history of like intellectuals and architects collaborating to move both of their industries in new ways, and I think what we're doing with aesthetics is just the latest in that kind of historic trajectory of collaborations across industries that propel architecture in new directions. Yeah. I mean, that, that was such a great, I feel like I have like 50 questions. You're right. This could be a four hour podcast. <laughs> now. People love four um, hour podcasts. You know, people have so much time <laughs> these days. They just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, something I'm thinking about, you know, when, when you were talking about this is, in graphic design, um, aesthetics is often, like you said, used as beautiful or ugly, but it's kind of shorthanded as the surface level of something, just the way the thing looks. Yeah. That's the, like, you know, that's the aesthetics, but then it means something else or it's about something else. And uh, when I talk about design criticism and kind of how we talk about or write about design and architecture, I often find myself saying um, that I want to see graphic design criticism, especially be less focused on the aesthetics. And when I say that, I mean less focused on how it looks because yeah. uh, a lot of graphic design writing is about, oh, they use these typefaces or these colors or you know they modernized it by softening the curve on this letter form you know, or something like that. And I will refer to that as like, you know, semi-Kantian aesthetic judgment. Um, And I want to move towards something about, well, how does this piece of design function in the world? That's the type of criticism that I'm interested in. But when I was reading the book and hearing you answer that last question, that division starts to fall apart a little bit 
for me. And there's there's another definition in the book, and I can't remember if this was yours or if, or if this was someone else who were calling aesthetics just the basis for human activity, which is kind of what you were just saying. Yeah. And so I guess the question that I'm asking is, how do we move beyond thinking about aesthetics as the surface layer, the decoration, the thing that just is added on at the end, but is actually core to all of this, yeah. <laughs> really. You know um, what I mean? Um, yeah. You know, I uh, sort of ironically <laughs> in what this book is largely against is this idea that there is a surface of things and then there's like the real truth underneath. Yeah, like, yeah, so yeah. That's an idea that doesn't come from aesthetics. That's an idea that comes from critical theory. And that's critical mm, theory with mm -hmm. a capital C, capital T. And that emerges from the Frankfurt School in the yeah, early yeah, 20th yeah. century with, you know, Horkheimer and Adorno. And basically, right, these guys right. were uh, uh, essentially Marxists after kind of Marxism had fallen out of uh, a favor. But they introduced into the world this concept of critical theory and like critical reading. And what right. they meant was regular people as Marxism may or may not have shown, like don't have the ability to see the truth of things. It's only intellectuals that can see the truth of things. So the Frankfurt School really introduced this idea into academic culture that, that being critical, like, being having a critical eye and and being able to yeah. see through the bullshit and see the real truth of the thing like that's that's what you go to school for and that's like this serious business in which we're all engaged and and what they used is aesthetics as almost like the slur to describe <laughs> right the right right yeah, layer yeah, yeah. of things and that makes sense because to them aesthetics was whether or not things were only beautiful or ugly. So on one side, you have the old version of aesthetics, which is if things are beautiful or ugly. And people are like, we need a name for this totally useless surface layer that we see covering up the truth of everything. Let's let's call that aesthetics. That was what happened in the Frankfurt School. And that's why, right. uh, uh, that's why still today, people in universities talk about like, oh, I have a... You know, you have to be able to critically read something or critically look at it. Right. That's a descendant of the Frankfurt School, and people don't know that. Like, it's just a holdover because every generation of academics for the last five generations has been educated with this idea. So people use the term critical without even knowing its roots anymore. Um, and that's why... You know, we just had a, an art, well, no, I mean, it's not recent, but an architecture biennale in, I think it was like 2000, that was uh, curated by Massimilio Fuxis. And the title of it was Less Aesthetics, More Ethics. And oh, I remember yeah, being yeah. really pissed off about that as early as 2000, because I had been reading everyone from, you know, Aristotle to Susan Sontag and understanding that the aesthetics have a super political dimension and may actually be the dimension in which all politics takes place. And that's what right, philosopher right. Jacques Rancière, who's also with the book, writes about almost yeah, exclusively yeah, yeah. is that what well, you mentioned graphic design is that for that, for the one reading aesthetics is, oh, it's just the fact that this book is green and red and uses Helvetica and appeals to the eye yeah. and just like, but under right, right. that, like, oh, there's the truth of how this book, you know, functions in the world. So that's one reading of aesthetics, that it's just the colors and pretty shapes. The other is, as Timothy Morton describes it, is aesthetics is the discourse, that is to say, how we talk about the way that book moves to the world, the way it brushes up against its author who writes it, the way that material that's written by the author brushes up against the graphic designer who has an impact on it and how that brushes up against the publisher who changes it in a certain way and how that brushes up against the bookseller who displays it in a certain way and how that brushes up against the person who buys it and that mm. book has a different meaning to these different people or appeals to a different sense or 
one of them buys it because they like pink one of them buys it because they're deeply interested in the intellectual theories you know displayed in the book so the book bumps up against those people in new ways but that book whether it's being brushed up against the graphic designer the publisher the bookseller um, the buyer the buyer's child who picks it up and flips through it but doesn't read it that book is bouncing around the world and impacting people in different ways it does that in the aesthetic right. dimension because causality that is to say change can only happen in the real world that is the real world of aesthetics and aesthetics is just right aesthetics isn't a thing aesthetics is the discourse that just best describes uh, how we yeah, talk about yeah, yeah, yeah. how those things bounce around in the world so aesthetics has gone from being like the the you know unwanted redheaded stepchild of philosophy to being like the ether in which all philosophy now takes place <laughs> it's going to take me a bit to wrap my head around that, around that yeah, and you I, know what's so what's interesting, interesting is me. that that is and even you know the the term aesthetics is really an 18th century term popularized by Kant, but invented by this guy, Baumgartner. Um, but these aesthetic ideas, you know, are found as far, you know, back in Plato and his references to, to Socrates, that Aristotle talks about a certain vibrancy of seeing. There's all these descriptions of what we would now call aesthetics in the history of intellectual thought. It's just it didn't have... So how, you know, I, I don't want to say this like new definition of aesthetics, but this, this kind of larger, more encompassing definition of aesthetics, what does that mean for the architect, for the designer? Does that change how they work or think about their work or should yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, let's, let's just think about like, okay, so you're in Brooklyn, I'm in Manhattan. Let's just pick something in between us. Let's pick like the World Trade Center. Um, so at the World Trade Center, the, you know, the world famous architect Santiago Calatrava just built a $4 billion, you know, subway transit building, the white, you know, kind of mm-hmm. spiky one. And yeah. his entire narrative for that project, the reason it looks the way it is, is because he said it was um, supposed to look like a... Uh, uh, a dove being released from the hands of a child. Okay, mm. so I'm just going to give like your right. audience just a little moment to like swallow the small bit of vomit which just crept up their throat, because that's like not <laughs> it's so like condescending and cheesy, but it's like that is the way architecture has functioned for the last certainly the last like at least I mean in popular culture last twenty years that every architect has to give you an explanation about the brilliance behind their design and what inspired it and why it is the way it is. So you're supposed to value that building because it's about, you know, a a child releasing a dove and a dove is about peace. So the building is about peace and everyone loves children and their innocence and the building is innocent. And it's like, you're supposed to see the birdness in the building. You're not supposed to see the building's qualities. You're supposed to see and understand its narrative. So architects have been trained to mm. give people a narrative to accompany the physical thing that they're making. So, you know, some people do it through narrative. This building is a bird. Some people do it through diagrams. Like, so let's say the other, like, equidistant from me, I live on Mercer. Uh, <laughs> kind of like from, you know, 40 blocks south to 40 blocks north is let's say the, the kind of triangular building by Bjork Ingels. So that, oh, yeah, that yeah, building, yeah. he doesn't give it uh, a narrative that it's it's supposed to look like a bird, but it gives you a little diagram that says like, if you push this corner down and pull this corner up, right. these two big right. bright green arrows, and you draw a picture of the sun and draw a picture of sunlight hitting one of the windows in the middle, that right. you're just supposed to get it. Like, oh, this building looks the way it is because you got to get sun to this one window. So, so the idea is that you're not supposed to look at the building for its qualities. You're supposed to look at it, you know, and understand like, oh, it is the way it is because there's a scientific reason for it to get win, uh, windows. So I call that an alibi, like architecture, right. yeah, architects all need an alibi, you know, an alibi in crime. is like, oh, where were you when this crime was committed? So 
architects all today need an alibi for their building. Like, why does it look the way it looks? Like, what's the reason? You can't have just done this without a good reason. So the reason is either you're a genius and you're inspired by a bird or you're, you know, like so sensitive to the environment that you, you let the sun design the building and you had nothing to do with it. So you can't be blamed for its yeah. aesthetic qualities because no architect wants to be blamed for creating a willfully aesthetic object. So my hope in reintroducing uh, aesthetic discourse is that we can once again talk about the, the qualities of buildings, you know, that a building is rough or it's smooth or it's reflective or it's not, or it's shiny or it's matte finished or it's gold or it's red or it looks heavy or it mm -hmm. looks light. That these are the ways we sense buildings. These are the ways, like I described the book um, previously, that uh, you know, the owner, this building brushes up against the owner, against the tenants in a different way, against the people who walk by it and look at it about the people who walk by and just touch it about the people who see it in a postcard against the people who see it on a bus the building bounces around the aesthetic dimension and has different impacts on people and every little impact is a moment of potential for something new to happen in the world so let's say mostly right. nothing new happens in the world but if architecture can influence a new action within the world that makes that means it has political consequences because a building can literally create change in some of these ways that it brushes up around and through the world. And I'd rather people look at and talk about how buildings bounce around the world and how their aesthetic qualities are what govern how it bounces around the world than, than okay. talk about... Yeah. So that talks about it as an object, like an object independent of its relationships to birds or the sun that it has its own qualities. So looking at a building aesthetically uh, it, and thinking about how those aesthetic qualities are of political value as it enters the world is far more interesting than me than looking at a building and thinking it's only valuable because it looks like a bird and means freedom as was the genius idea of the architect who you know, wore the, wore the cape and pulled the sheet off with a big flourish, you know, and the qualities, right, right. the architectural qualities are something we haven't talked about in a hundred years. Right. And, and it's not just to look at those qualities to say, no, this it's is how beautiful or ugly, but this is how this it is how this thing reacts, to, reacts things. to things. This building is going to influence or impact a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And all of those influences happen because people perceive its aesthetic qualities in different ways. And not only nice. that, if you're a subscriber to say object-oriented ontology, a building becomes even more interesting because the qualities that you can't sense are minute in comparison to the qualities that you can. So I think it was Thomas Edison who said, we don't know one millionth of 1% about anything. That's true right. with a water yeah. bottle and that's true with a building. But there's so many things that you don't understand about a building that uh, it makes buildings once again, this is another aspect of the book, almost like kind of estranges them from reality a little bit. It makes them, especially if you strive to make them estranged from reality, that it, it actually heightens your awareness of the reality when a building somehow seems as if it doesn't fit into your current definition of what, what a building is. So buildings have the ability to, raise your awareness about the reality you're perceiving. And that's a big theme in the work, book and writing by people yeah. like Michael Young and Jacques Bonsier, who I have the dialogue with. I want to go back to something that you said earlier about the, the kind of like the architect's alibi or the designer's alibi, this kind of um, explaining away or kind of creating narratives around everything. So it's not just this object. That's something, you know, I think about that a lot. And I, I especially... I, I am probably guilty of it, honestly, and I'm especially guilty of it as a teacher with my students of wanting them to have a reason for every decision, whether it's the typeface that they chose or, you know, what this color is. And it's not just you're just kind of going with your you're not you're not saying that that the architect or the designer is just kind of going with their gut. There, there's like a middle ground, right? Am, am I understanding oh, yeah, that? Absolutely. That you want can, to, can you talk more you about, want, about that, yeah, I guess? You want to anticipate like how you think this building will enter the world through its aesthetic qualities. Or you want to really, okay, you know, do something in a slightly different way that you know makes 
that allows people to get more curious about what it is that they're looking at. I mean, imagine, you know, a building that doesn't fit your conventional notion of building. It generally raises someone's curiosity, like at least mm-hmm. what the hell is that? Like, why is that the way it is? Why is that so different than everything else? Like it kind of is an invitation to curiosity. You know? And I think of the right. value of curiosity in today's society because we have so little of it. You know, we, we take a news bite that comes across Twitter and we believe it is true because it's from a celebrity. But if we were more curious about where it came from or whether it's true or not, or how it distorts the truth, if we had more curiosity and more kind of willingness to go deeper into things, I think we live in a much different world. But to go back to your original question about like why you require your students to have reasons, I'm going to make an assumption here that I've never been on a graphic design jury, but after a project, do you basically like have your students pin up a project and then a couple of graphic designers sit around and talk about it in front of the student? Basically, yeah. The student has to say a couple words about their project before you guys open up and start dishing on it? Yeah. Okay. So that is, that action, that format is a descendant of the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, which was, you know, essentially the most successful school of architecture over its 300 year history. I basically closed in 1968 when the world kind of shifted. Okay. But the idea originally was uh, that the, the students all study under a master. So um, uh, the great architects of New York City went to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. So for instance, like Raymond Hood, who designed a lot of Rockefeller Center, uh, a lot of, or Karen oh, okay. Hastings, who did uh, you know, like the New York Public Library and Grand Central, these were all, designed by architects who had gone to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. And the model of the Ecole de Beaux-Arts is a, a master a teacher who's an architect, uh, takes on like 12 students for a semester. And then at the end, uh, at the due date, um, they take their project and all of the, the, the masters go into the back room and they, they pin up the projects and they would talk about them as faculty only. And they'd be like, oh, this you know, person's project is a little bit too Greek, it's, you know, whatever they say, and then they give it an A or B or C or D or or whatever. So that format was imported into the United States through architecture schools, the first few of which are like Columbia, uh, by people who went to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. So they also imported the format of uh, pinning up work and talking about it. But because America was more democratic and equal, they let the students into the room. So now, all of a sudden, we've put this on the students the onus of having to talk about their projects before the faculty dish on them. So we make our students pin up and we make them say three minutes of stuff about their project before we say whether that before we talk about their project. So basically, what the world has done is created a situation in graphic design or in architecture where we're forcing the students to come up with at least three minutes of bullshit about their project, even if they have only have 30 seconds worth. <laughs> right, right, and then right, we're right. forcing other critics to talk about the work. And the easiest way to talk about the work is to talk whether or not the bullshit the student said was true or not or evident in the work. So a student will say, I did it because of the sun or to make it look like the bird and the crit- critics right, will say, yeah. Well, no, actually, it would work better if it went like this because the sun would hit it like this, or it would look more bird-like if you put a giant beak on it and painted it yellow. But we never talk about, like, you know, the very notion of having to talk about it is part of the problem. So the format of architectural education is entirely predicated on a student talking about the work and then the critic talking about how the student talked about the work. Right. And then and then both of those are to kind of go back to your earlier point are missing out on how does this thing live in the world right. and you, you never up we against... don't have a discourse in architecture yeah. for talking about or anticipating right through the aesthetic dimension how this thing enters the world, like how yeah. it might be yeah. different for the owner or the tenant or the person who walks by or how it bounces around the world and how it might impact the world, because that involves a little bit of fortune telling. Right. And. Instead of yeah. instead of being fortune tellers, we want to talk about like concrete things. And I know from experience, you know, as a genius architect myself, that you could catch more sun if you pulled up this corner 
or you could make it more bird-like <laughs> if you, you know, if you made the shingles right. a different different colors gray, because then they would all look more like feathers. You know? like, so I have to give you concrete information about your line of bullshit that you applied to this idea about a building that you're proposing would exist in the world, but we're not allowed to talk about how it might exist in the world because we don't have a tradition of talking about that and we don't know how to talk about it like that. So it's like the world is being filled with these architectural projects that have really shitty architectural qualities because nobody's willing to talk about them. But we have a lot of objects that have reasons for existing, like the zoning envelope is like this, or I lifted up the corner. So, I mean, most architecture buildings in New York City today will have a lifted up corner. It's just more or less mm-hmm. like the kind of default proposition in architecture. So if you go to Alice Huttley Hall by Diller and Scafidio, you know, they have a lifted up corner so oh, you yeah. can see into the theater because we're revealing the truth of the theater, you know, that's a critical right. idea and it's no accident that uh, Liz and Rick who are fantastic architects I know Liz and I love their work but their great patron was K. Michael Hayes who's kind of the, the, the standard bearer for critical theory and architecture and he gave them the solo show when he was the architectural curator at the Whitney which really launched, launched this most recent version of their career where they're getting all this really great work so their idea yeah, of lifting yeah. up the corner to reveal the inside is a critical theory idea. Yark Ingalls is lifting up the corner to let the sunlight into a certain part of the building. But architecture today can mostly be defined by the, you know, the expert lifting up of corners for, you know, altruistic purposes. I, I could talk about that. I literally could talk about this for another two or three hours. Um, but I know, I know, I know you have a time limit. So uh, my last question is and it's it's a little bit of a deviation from what we were just talking about, but I'm I'm, you know, you just finished this book, and this is research that you've been doing, you know, as you said, basically your entire career. I'm kind of uh, wondering what's next. Is there more to do around this subject? Do you have other research interests that you're focusing on? What's kind of the next uh, next thing that you're working on or thinking you know, about? I have this like I have this quality where I I just like I. I can't really start watching like series on HBO until there's like eight or 10 episodes. Like I can't just watch like one episode of something. Uh, I can't yeah. read a book unless there's already like five sequels. I could see this being a some problem. aspect yeah. of my personality that's just like really drawn to the long game. So I have students that are like, Oh, you know, like, you know, I was reading about object oriented ontology. It's so like two years ago. And I'm like, Wait a minute, my, my education is in classical architecture, and that lasted, you know, largely from 1421 until, uh, you know, like, let's say 1890, before things got started becoming Art Nouveau or Modernist or whatever. So classical architecture was at least a, you know, 300-year, maybe 350-year project in architecture. And, yeah. you know, it's not like I'm going to be like, oh, I did this thing in aesthetics, and... Now I'm going to do something on like, uh, I don't know, you know, environmental epistemology. Like I'm going to shift gears and do the next new thing. Like, you know, I've spent, you know, 20 years of my life on this subject already and I want to introduce it and it may take, uh, as I told you, the architectural community is set up to think in a certain way. And we all think we're being critical about our thought when the very idea of being critical of our thought is what's stopping us from thinking in new ways. So our academies are set up to pump out like people who are producing these narratives and alibis for architecture under the disguise of thinking that they're all producing like radical new work when actually the very apparatus of how we think about how we talk about students work or how we expect them to present their work is actually what's locking us into this way of actually doing really conservative bad work that's bad for the world in my opinion so yeah i think if there's a a reintroduction of aesthetics into philosophy so the you know the the title of the book is uh, aesthetics equals politics new discourses across art architecture and philosophy so this isn't happening in one industry i don't think this is a like find a uh i don't think this is like find a uh you know 
the next hot thing in any of these industries. I think if aesthetics is reintroduced into any and or all of these discourses, and we're talking to each other about the impacts of what this might be, that I don't know, maybe this is like a 10 year project, maybe it's a 100 year project, maybe it's another right. 400 year project. I don't really know, but it's you know what my expertise is in right now, and there's some interest in at least art, architecture, and philosophy, which you know are some pretty I would say important uh, important industries to the world. Um, so I don't I don't know I don't think there's yeah. like some new big revelation <laughs> that comes after, but I, I will say that I. You know, I edited this book and spent a lot of time with the material, but the, the book that I had done before this, I mean, I had done a monograph on the office before, but there's a book in between the two that's called uh, Designing Social Equality, Architecture, Aesthetics, mm, and right. the Perception of Democracy. And that was thinking about how this aesthetic dimension operates in architecture politically. You know, so it's taking all right. of the stuff I learned in the first compendium of, of texts that I did, all the stuff I learned editing this this book, and thinking about what uh, 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 alternate models for not only architectural education uh, would be, but the discipline and discourse of architecture. So, if we're, I, I used to, I, I kind of think about it like this: that architecture is used to changing styles. You know, that we were doing cur- we were doing mm-hmm. pointy, crazy, deconstructive things for a while, and then we we're doing lobby smooth you know fluid zaha hadith things for a while and now we're lifting corners and letting sunlight in because sustainability is important and and that the world is used to seeing architecture as changes in styles and instead of thinking about just adding another style to that list and calling that innovation my friends and i who have been engaging this material uh are thinking about changing the operating system that architecture runs on. So mm-hmm. instead of introducing a new software program, like let's think about like completely changing the operating system of architecture and intellectual level. Right. So it's not like, what does the new thing look like? It's like, how do these ideas like alter how we might even teach architecture or how we might be structured yeah. as a profession or how we think about what we do enters and bounces around the world. So. I think we're trying to change yeah. the profession at a much more fundamental level than just a kind of stylistic way, which is so ironic because people associate architecture and aesthetics with only the stylistic way. We're right, thinking about right. our aesthetics as the intellectual tool and discourse that is the can opener that allows us to reformat the f- profession and it's very like academic and professional roots. So we're in the process of right now of like pulling up and replanting roots in different ways and in in different schools around the world that these people are active and in different disciplines, even in art, architecture and philosophy. But, you know, Graham Harmon has told me how his philosophical ideas have influenced things like uh, fish, fish hatcheries, you know, <laughs> like people oh, are interested that these yeah, ideas yeah. are being propelled through cultures in different ways. And having an impact and that's how exactly how aesthetics work that ideas and objects bump around the world and have the capacity for change and those changings are already taking place in the worlds of art architecture and philosophy but maybe these ideas also bounce around the world and have additional influences in things like politics you know and you know it's wishful thinking to think that you know, my book on aesthetics is going to take down Trump, but you know, really, <laughs> fingers <laughs> crossed. But the, you know, the only thing that has changed uh, the world is ideas, right? So, right. Like, right. so you can either hide your head in the sand, or you can introduce new ideas into whatever aspect of the world in, you, in which you operate, and hope that those ideas have you know, positive social and cultural impact as they propagate through the world. But all I can really do is produce the idea and believe that the idea is just and have thought about how it enters the world and thought about how it might operate justly and in terms of uh, equality and, and um, you know, propagation of democracy, which is largely what my last book is about, that relationship between aesthetics and, and perception and democracy and equality. So anticipating how these ideas go through the world and, and hoping, but you know, you can't say like with this publication, yeah. I hereby bring down Donald Trump <laughs> and dictators everywhere, but 
<laughs> you know, the only right, thing that right, ever right. has has been new ideas. So. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's such a great way to kind of wrap up this whole conversation. Also, I, I found the book so fascinating and challenging and interesting. And uh, same for this conversation. It was nice to kind of talk out some of these ideas and hear a little bit more about kind of your approach and how you think about these things. So thank you so much for uh, being on it's the podcast. Pleasure. It's been uh, nice, nice to speak, speak about the book. But also, like, every time I do these kinds of uh, talks, it makes me think about the material in a new way, which means... Like in aesthetic Good. terms, that my own book is like bouncing around my own world and having different impacts, you know. <laughs> so it's like further yeah. evidence of what's in the book is true by virtue of the very behavior of the book in my own life. So that's always like, an interesting yeah. thing to, to confront. I love that. I love that. The book on aesthetics operating uh, in the aesthetic village. This episode was recorded on June 4th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcasts. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>